It is truly a blessing to be here together with you this evening, and I'm thankful for each of you who are here, especially the visitors. We heartily welcome you, whether you're visiting from the community or from congregations in the area, we appreciate you taking the time to come and share our evening together. Brother Danny talked about what a, a fit night and fit weather it is to just cuddle up and have some chili and cornbread. And I guess what we're going to do instead of that is have a little cornbread for the soul. There's nothing really unique or extravagant or fancy about our study tonight. It's just a lot like cornbread. It's just the basic nutrient of the Word of God. I want to talk to you a while about what the Word of God says about sin deceit, and addiction. I mean, it's obvious all around us we see people addicted to things. When you talk about addiction, probably the first thing that comes to our mind are drug addictions and alcohol addictions. We think of alcoholics and things like that. And as you think about it a little bit longer, then you might think about uh, compulsive gambling as an addiction or other compulsive behaviors. There's, I guess, been different um, shows aired over the last couple of years about people that have an addiction to shopping and buying and, you know, beyond just being a little out of control, but just totally crazy, out of control with it, addicted, compulsive. Well, I want to talk about sin and suggest to you that any and every kind of sin can have the potential of being life-dominating and addictive in its nature. And I'm not trying to necessarily draw a parallel to, to some chemical addiction, for example. But you may observe some parallels, and that's really just incidental. I'm not trying to create those parallels. I just want to look at what the Bible says about the sin cycle. And we're going to talk about the sin cycle from two different perspectives. We're going to look at a one-time trip through the sin cycle of one occasion where we do something wrong. And we're going to look at the life that makes a habit of sinning over and over, willfully, again and again, going through this sin cycle, repeatedly, knowingly doing things that are contrary to the will of God. And we'll look at the repetition of that sin cycle and how it can affect our soul and how that that sin can be deceitful. It is, in fact, deceitful and therefore create an addiction. When I talk about the sin cycle, you might have wondered what I meant, and I want to talk to you about these four levels in the sin cycle. Level one is the level where you're tempted, and it's based on natural desires, and sin hasn't happened yet in this level. It's just where you're tempted to sin. And then in level two, we have lust and that is where a person experiences not just a natural desire for something but a sinful lust where our desire becomes focused towards something that's forbidden the so-called forbidden fruit and this level begins to involve the contemplation of sin then in level three we'll talk about where that lust becomes conceived what i want to call a conceived lust and that's where you actually begin to plan sin There is a decision that is made to yield to that sin prior to the actual act of the the particular sin in mind itself 
sin has happened here, but there's yet a physical act to follow, and that is the sinful deed, the sinful act itself, the consummation of that sinful lust. And one trip through that, that's what I meant when I talk about the sin cycle. Now, if you've studied much scripture and thought much about a pattern that, that, uh, of us being tempted and then sinning, you probably have already thought about a key passage for our study this evening. And that is James 1, beginning at verse 13. And I'd like to read that for you just now. James 1, verse 13 through 15. The writer said, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Now I believe what James describes here is essentially the sin cycle as we have it diagrammed on the board. He talks about somebody being tempted when they're drawn away of their own lust. That is a natural desire for something and that becomes uh, the occasion upon which temptation happens. But then what happens? That lust becomes twisted into a sinful lust. It's a contemplation of sin. It's not just a desire for something, but it's a desire. It's where that desire becomes focused on something that's forbidden. It's one thing to want fruit. And it's an entirely different matter to want fruit that's forbidden. We use the expression forbidden fruit very often to describe the notion of something that we're not supposed to have or something in which we are not supposed to indulge. And we use that because it's a fit metaphor for us to symbolize different things because we recognize that with the story in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve partook of fruit that was forbidden. That involves this notion of having a desire for something, but then that desire becoming focused towards something that's forbidden. And that is that second level. He talked about lust being conceived here. And when we read different examples in Scripture of people being caught up in a sinful circumstance, we'll find instances where, first of all, they're lusting for something, and then... As that lust is focused towards something that's forbidden, they begin to make plans to carry that out. And what we're going to learn tonight is in that phase of conceived lust, we have the beginnings of a mental obsession. Now here's one of those instances where there's just a a, a comparison that's made to certain chemical addictions that it's just part of the discussion. As I've visited with recovered alcoholics and recovered drug addicts through the years, One thing I've heard a lot of people talk about in their recovery process is coming to recognize how mentally obsessed they were over that particular substance that they craved. That they had a mental fixation and a mental obsession. It was more than just thinking about it from time to time, but in their minds they were obsessed with it. And in order to overcome that, they had to become more obsessed with having a healthy spiritual recovery than they were obsessed with the desire for that particular substance that they were craving. Well, as we study what the Bible teaches us about sin, I think we'll find the same thing. That there there is a sense of mental obsession that begins to develop here 
with this conceived lust as we begin to plan and to contemplate and make choices and sin has begun to lower its icy grip upon our hearts and deceive us. It's lying to us. It's promising things that it can't and won't deliver. And it's not admitting to the problems that it will cause. And the more we become blinded to sin's problems and deceived by sin's uh, nature and by sin's sway, <clears throat> the more we get this mental obsession with some particular activity. Now we go from that conceived lust into the sinful deed when he said that that lust that's conceived, it brings forth sin. That's the natural uh, final product in that sin cycle. And of course the wages of sin is death, so sin when it's finished, it ultimately kills. That's the grand irony of sin to which sin will not admit. Sin promises this is living Whatever that person is wanting to do that's being tempted to sin. Sin promises, this is life. This makes me feel alive. I'm enjoying this. This is a meaningful life. All the while, setting you up for death. Sin ultimately delivers the opposite of what it promises. And that deceived state of mind that fails to recognize that is a mind that becomes obsessed over that sin. And that's where the addiction comes in. Whatever the sin that you want to talk about, that's where the addiction is. Now let's study each of these phases as we go through our lesson tonight. Let's talk a little bit about level one. I made the statement that this level is temptation and it's not a sin. That it's temptation based on natural desire. And you might say, well, but James 1 there used the word lust. And it's true that he used the word lust, but that word isn't always a sinful lust. In James 1, verse 2 and 3, he said, Brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. This passage teaches us that there can be good things actually come out of level one where we face temptation. A man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust. How can that be good to be tempted? Well, he explains how. That the trying of your faith worketh patience. If you successfully resist this temptation, then you have clarity of thought. You don't have a mental obsession with the sin. You have a clear understanding of its destructive nature and you've made the healthy spiritual choice to turn away from that because of its destructive power. But how could that being drawn away of your own lust, how could that lust not be a sin? Well, if it was a sin to be tempted, then he wouldn't tell us to count it all joy when we fall into these different temptations. If it was a sin to be tempted, would he say, count it a joy when you sin? Of course not. So we understand there's a level here that that's based on these natural desires. Let's illustrate this idea. For example, in Luke 22 and verse 15, Jesus said to his disciples here, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, if you're familiar with the context, you'll recall that Christ here is nearing the hour of his trial and uh, the time of his crucifixion. And so he wants to have the Passover supper with his disciples. And at that occasion, he demonstrated the institution there of what we commonly call the Lord's Supper. And what did he say? With desire. Is that a sin? 
I have desired. Is he sinning? Well, of course not. He's the Savior. He's the Son of God. And him was no sin. There was no guile in his mouth. He, he didn't do anything wrong. When he said this, he used a word that there in Luke's record that's the same word that's translated lust in James chapter 1. It just means a natural desire for something. Sometimes in the scriptures that word is describing something that's sinful. But sometimes it just describes a natural desire. Let's look at some other instances. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7 through 9, he said, I would that all men were even as my, I myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I, but if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Now, if you've studied this passage much, you might recognize that this is talking about physical passions that would exist between a husband and a wife. And as he mentions a human's natural inclination towards those passions, he says it's better to marry than to burn. And he used a word there that means to burn with lust or burn with passion. And so he's acknowledging that a person might have a natural inclination to desire that companionship that's only to be enjoyed in marriage, physical, sexual companionship. He talked about that as a natural desire. That's part in this context of the motivation that pulls a couple together and uh, uh, allows them to make the decision to share their life together and enjoy a lot of the other blessings that marriage brings besides the participation in the physical union that's discussed here. So it's one among many blessings in the marital union, and it's built around something that God made humans to desire. Paul says, I'm kind of unique. I'm one of those people that I don't have to suffer with that desire very much. And he talks like there might be others that might not have so much of that natural passion, but he seems to indicate that others more likely would. That natural desire isn't sinful. It's how God made us. It's part of a motivation that makes a family. So that's certainly a good thing, isn't it? Let's consider another example. Thinking about what happened in the Garden of Eden, which we briefly touched on a moment ago, let's go read in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. This is after Satan had spoken to the woman and enticed her to partake of the forbidden fruit. It says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her and he did eat. Now let's observe the portion of the story here where he tells us that she saw that the tree was good for food. Is it a sin to need food? Of course not. God made us to need food. We need nourishment. Is it a sin to be hungry? I hope not. <laughs> I mean, we feel that pretty often, don't we? Eve needed food. She liked food. She wanted food. There were times she was hungry for food. And when she saw this forbidden fruit, she recognized that it was good for food. May I suggest to you that when she was tempted, she was drawn away of her own natural desires? Part of the basis for her temptation 
was her natural desire for food. And there's nothing wrong with that natural desire for food. The problem comes when that desire is focused on fruit that's forbidden. Of the fruit of the trees of the garden we may freely eat, Eve told Satan when he quizzed her. It was not wrong for them to want food, need food, eat food, enjoy food. God planned that for them. And they had all these trees of which they could eat for food. And so based on that natural need for food, Satan tempted her to direct that natural desire that could have its godly fulfillment towards something that God had forbidden. That's where we understand sin's enticement. We are commanded to resist this. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13 says, There's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. At temptation level here, level one as we've labeled it, God promises that for the child of God, there is a way of escape. And he tells us something that in our hour of trial, we really don't want to believe. It's common and it's avoidable. Here's what our guilt does to us. Once we've made the choice to do something we know we shouldn't do, our guilt... We feel guilty. We don't like it. We don't want to feel guilty. So we start making excuses. We do it all the time. And one of those excuses is, I just couldn't help it. I couldn't help myself. And this passage is a clear reminder that, well, actually we can. At this level, when we're being tempted, we can help it. There is a way to escape. Well, but my circumstances are extenuating. My circumstances are unique. You who are telling me that this is wrong, that I shouldn't have done this, well, you just don't know what it's like to... and then proceed to describe what I think makes my circumstances unique. And this passage says, it's common to man. Somebody says, but I, I would just... Born with this desire that I just can't help and it's just the way I am and so therefore God made me this way and you ought to just accept it. You know, everybody's born with desires to do things that could become wrong when it's a desire that's tilted towards fruit that's forbidden. That's not unique to say that, well, I was born with this desire. We're all born wanting things that could become wrong. It's common to man, he says. And so all the excuses that I can mount up to try to make myself believe and try to help someone else believe that something makes my situation unique that excuses me doing this and so leave me alone about it. No. I need to get over myself. And I need to admit that God is right and I'm wrong and God says, 
There's nothing unique about my set of circumstances that makes my temptation worse than everybody else's. It's common to man. There is a way to escape. It is possible for me to bear this in this moment. I just might choose not to. And it's a choice that I make. And we need to know and believe that that sin involves choices that we make. And it's choice that we didn't have to make. But we did. Now let's talk about level two. Where that desire has become focused towards something that's forbidden. And it is not just a natural desire, but it's a sinful lust and the commencement of this contemplation of sin, the early beginnings of this mental obsession with sin. James 1 says, when lust hath conceived, by this point it's now a sinful lust. It's aimed towards the forbidden fruit. In Matthew 5, verse 27 and 28, Jesus said, You've heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. We read earlier in 1 Corinthians 7 about a man's natural desires, or for that matter, a woman's natural desires that bring them towards the need of physical companionship with a godly spouse. And we talked about how God made us that way and that's just part of the marital package and the family package. And that's not wrong. But then we come to this where Christ talks about that natural desire becoming redirected towards forbidden fruit. He entertains the possibility of a man looking at a woman and not just appreciating that she's lovely not just recognizing that she's attractive, but he's looking at her with lustful intent. He's looking with lustful purpose. He talks about looking on a woman to lust after her. And that involves phraseology and a term there that speaks to the intent of his mind. He didn't just recognize that she's pretty. He's looking for the reason of focusing his desires towards fruit that he's not supposed to have. And so that lust, or that natural desire, has become a sinful lust. In Job chapter 31 and verse 1, Job, trying to defend his integrity, said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? It's sort of interesting how Job characterized his relationship with his eyeballs here he says we've got a contract <laughs> me and my eyes i've made a covenant he's made a decision he's not going to look at this beautiful young girl with lustful intent and because i've made that covenant with my eyes why should i think about her now, I know if you check a lot of modern language translations, you'll notice they'll say, why then should I look upon a maid? That caused me to wonder if that was a more accurate way to render this passage. But as I studied the words that are used, the dictionaries that I can find, say the Hebrew word translated think there means think. And so it seems to me that what Job is saying is, since I've made a covenant to not look, I need to also be sure I'm not looking with my eyes shut. Because I'm not going to look with lustful intent. I don't need to think about her with lustful intent. Now, 
That's an easy illustration to understand when you pair Job 31 and verse 1 with Matthew 5 and verse 27 and 28. We understand that as it relates to a, a man's physical appetite for uh, the, the, the passionate relationship. But let's pull it, these concepts out of the window of sexual misconcept for, uh, misconduct for just a moment. And let's think about greed. We're taught not to covet our neighbor's possessions. So on the one hand, I need to have financial resources to meet my obligations, to provide for my family and things that God demands of me. That's not wrong for me to recognize that I need to be able to earn wages to be able to fulfill my obligations towards my family. The Bible teaches that. But what if I take that desire and redirect it towards my neighbor's financial resources. Well, I'm not supposed to do that. That's where that natural desire has become a lust that's directed towards forbidden fruit. That's his, that's not mine. Well, I'm not going to go look at it and say, wow, I really wished I had all that. But then I shut my eyes and I mentally obsess over it. I've made a covenant with my eyes that I'm not going to look at it with that kind of intent. Why then would I shut my eyes and think about it with that kind of sinful intent? Focusing my desires towards forbidden fruit. Whether you're talking about fornication, whether you're talking about coveting your neighbor's possession, or whether you're talking about any other sin you want to use to illustrate the idea, one thing we see consistent in all of this, if we're to win the battle against sin, if we're to overcome sin in our lives, one thing we've got to do is we've got to learn to stop the mental obsession in its tracks. We can't let ourselves not only look about it, but we can't allow ourselves to dwell on it. We've got to clear our minds of that mental obsession because that mental obsession there is the beginnings of a road that leads to spiritual depth. So let's look at another example. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise, we read that a moment ago. We talked about that idea of it being good for food, that it wasn't wrong for her to need the food. But now look at this. She's not just talking about any food, but she's looking at that tree, the forbidden fruit. She's not just needing food. She's wanting food that God said, don't eat of it lest you die. So the redirection of her desires towards the forbidden fruit of life has turned her natural desire into a sinful lust. And imagine that moment frozen in time where Eve saw the tree that it was good for food. I don't know how long she stared at it. It doesn't matter if it was five seconds or five hours. It was a moment of mental obsession with sin. How long that moment lasted isn't important to the point. The point is there's that dangerous mental obsession. And look at the thoughts that fill her mind. 
She's not thinking like she was earlier that, well, God said not to eat this. She's not thinking, he warned us we'd die if we eat this. She's thinking, food. It'll make us wise. It'll do these things for us. It's pleasant to the eyes. Instead of thinking about the penalty for sin, she's now thinking about what sin promised to deliver. She's not thinking that that sin is going to bring death in the world and that later on she would be grieving that one son murdered another. The very next chapter, Cain killed Abel. And Satan standing there enticing her to fill her mind with his mental obsession with sin. He's not saying, now you need to understand that all your offspring is going to suffer death and, and sin and sorrow coming in the world and people are going to be lost because of this and nations will be at war and people will fight and sin and it's going to corrupt the earth so much so that in a few centuries God's going to destroy it all with a flood. He's not telling her all that because he doesn't want to thinking about all that. He wants her thinking about food to eat, pleasant to the eyes. It'll satisfy my pride in making me wise. I'll be like a god. See? Sin is promising something, but it doesn't actually deliver. And in the melee and the mayhem of this mental obsession, She's beginning to believe a lie. I'm going to show you the trickiness of this deal. Did it make her wise? Hey, she learned. She learned right from wrong. She learned good from evil. So there was a sense in which the sin delivered what it promised, <coughs> but not exactly what it promised. Yes, it did make her wise to good and evil, but it also did a whole bunch of other stuff that's horrible. We heard announcements tonight about case after case of cancer, and this one's, you know, got heart disease, and that one's had a stroke, and I'm, I'm you know, not, maybe not in tonight's announcement about heart disease and stroke, but stay tuned. If you don't have them next week, you had them last week, and you're going to hear more. And then somebody had a, an industrial accident, and they were killed, and somebody else was murdered, and somebody got robbed, and you'll turn on the news and read about somebody setting off a bomb. And on and on and on, you're going to hear about the delivery of her sin and Adam's sin. Satan didn't put all that in his commercials. He just put food. Pleasant to look at. It'll make me wise. And her mental obsession was twisting her mind to forget the facts that mattered. And I submit to you that's what happens to you and I every time we choose to sin. Maybe not as obvious as what we can read about in Genesis 3 and 6, but it happens just the same. Sin by its nature is deceitful. Ephesians 4 and 22, that you put off concerning the former conversation of the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. 
Our passion for the forbidden fruit lies to us. It tells us it's satisfying. It tells us it's fulfilling. It tells us it'll make us happy. It draws us deeper into that mentally obsessed state of mind, all the while leaving out the facts that matter. That the way of the transgressor is hard, as the Scriptures say. That fools, because of their iniquity, are afflicted, as the Scriptures say. It fails to tell us about the sorrow and the suffering that sin is certain to deliver. And it doesn't remind us that this can separate you from your God. (coughs) It is deceitful by its very nature. Let's talk about level three. That conceived lust where we commence these plans to do the wrong thing. Romans 6 and verse 16 talks about that decision to sin when he said, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. As this describes a righteous lifestyle in contrast with a sinful lifestyle, he talks about that as a decision to yield. The faithful child of God has made a decision to yield. To God. The person who's living a life of sin has made a decision to yield, to give in to sin. And as you think about the scripture's portrayal of different people caught up in this cycle, it becomes obvious when we look in different stories how we find this decision to yield when that lust hath conceived. Maybe some specific sinful act that's being desired hasn't been committed yet, but it's soon to follow. Romans 8 and verse 7 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. You might be looking at that passage saying, What on earth does that have to do with the decision to yield? Bear with me as I try to make that clear to you. The carnal mind is the mindset that's looking at this thing with a carnal perspective rather than a spiritual perspective. The carnal mind is the mind that's ogling the fruit, saying it's pleasant to look at, it's good for food, it'll make me wise. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And I let myself get caught up in this deception in believing sin's lie. And that mindset that's thinking like that is a carnal mindset. And the carnal mind can't do the right thing. When we let ourselves see only sin's enticement and we refuse to think about sin's awful penalty and sin's awful problems that are sure to follow, we are guaranteed that we will not make the right decision because a carnal mind becomes God's enemy. And the carnal mind will not submit to God. It can't be submissive to the law of God. Because it's not thinking about this fruit and this this eating this is going to kill my babies. 
It's going to bring sin and suffering in the world. And all my children and all my offspring are forever, uh, as long as the world stands, they're going to be fighting cancer and they're going to be fighting the flu and they're going to be fighting disease and they're going to be fighting each other and fighting over who gets what and who gets to live where and robbing and stealing and stabbing. and all. She wasn't thinking about that. She was thinking carnally. <clears throat> In that state of mind, we can't make a good decision. With the mental obsession, we can't succeed against sin. Because that mental obsession believes sin's a lie and makes that choice to yield. Find the example of this in the prodigal son in Luke 15, verse 11 through 13. He said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that fall to me. And he divided it of them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. Now I want to tell you what I do not believe happened with the prodigal son. I do not believe that he asked for all that inheritance with godly intent, and got it in his hand, and one day said, I think I'll go live somewhere else, and went over there and woke up to the fact that, hey, sin is fun. <laughs> I think I'll do that. It seems to me that the tenor of this story is he had that intent all along. What I want to suggest to you is that he had been lusting sinfully, and when he went to Dad and said, Give me my inheritance. He was at level three. He was beginning to carry out plans to go indulge in the sin of that riotous living where he wasted his money with harlots, as his brother later said. I want you to notice something. When we find him beginning to initiate plans to fulfill his sinful lust, the record says not many days after. Here's what I want you to notice. Once we let ourselves get to this point, it's not going to be long before we do something wrong. We've already been thinking wrong. And it's not going to be long before we do something wrong. If we don't wake up in a hurry, we got problems. If you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son, then you're familiar with the fact that he didn't wake up until he got off in the far country and his sin had ruined his life. And then the lights come on. Then the clouds parted. Then when his life was destroyed, when he saw right in front of his face the evidence that sin had lied to him and it wasn't as fun as he originally thought it was going to be, And he looked back at dad's house in his mind and thought, you know, the hired servants back there have it better than I do. Congratulations, you believe sin's lie. And when you started carrying out plans to go through with your sin, it wasn't long until you did just what you've been planning and just what you've been dreaming about all along. Let's look at another example. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2 through 4, we read the sad story of David with Bathsheba. 
It come to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house and from the roof he saw a woman washing herself and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her and she came in unto him and he lay with her and she was purified from her uncleanness and she returned to her house. If you're acquainted with the story of King David's life, this is a story that breaks your heart because the great hero of faith has just fallen flat of his face in this thing and we just can't stand to see it happen. Maybe because it reminds us of too many of our failures. Oh, I know your failure may not be adultery. Maybe it was something different. A while ago when we were talking about chemical addiction, there might be a part of you that's saying, well, yeah, but at least I don't have that. Well, at least I'm not that gutter drunk alcoholic trying to climb out of that mess. Tell yourself it's not as bad. But sin separates from God. I can tell myself, well, at least I didn't do this and at least I didn't do that until eventually I wake up and realize that I sound just like the Pharisee in the, in the temple praying, well, God, I'm thankful I'm not like this old boy. When all the while I see that I may not have done this, but I've done something that made me look just like this to God. When David saw her washing it appears that there was a moment there where he was in violation of the principle Jesus taught in Matthew 5, 27 and 28. It was more than just noticing someone that was lovely, but it appears that he looked with lustful intent. Before he ever committed adultery, David sent messengers. He's carrying out plans. He's made a decision in his mind to yield and he's carrying out plans. Let me ask you a question. Let's suppose for a moment that we could go back in time and let's, let's just freeze that moment with old Dave right there when he sent the messengers and we went up to King David and said, King David, wake up! Don't you realize what you're about to do? You think you could pull him out of it? You have any luck doing that with yourself? Time you get to this point? Ouch. You know, David's problem was he wasn't thinking about the shame. He wasn't thinking about the disgrace. He wasn't thinking about Nathan the prophet's withering rebuke. He wasn't thinking about disappointing God. He wasn't thinking about disappointing Israel. He wasn't thinking about betraying his good and loyal friend Uriah. He wasn't thinking about siring a child. He wasn't thinking about that child having to die because of the shame that its presence brought upon the family of God and on the household of David. He wasn't thinking about any of that. He was mentally obsessed. Busy believing sin's lie. Very deeply steeped. 
before he ever got Bathsheba in his chambers. He was all that. The fact that he sent messengers shows that he's made a decision, he's decided to yield, and he's carrying out plans to sin. Not many days hence. You get to that point, it can't be long before things get really bad. With Eve, I think of it as her reaching for the fruit. Once, but before she even touched it, once she made that decision and began to reach, it was over. Is there any stopping her now? The reason I'm emphasizing that concept of that being us being so far gone at that is to make us fear letting ourselves get that far. We can't do that because peril awaits. What about that fourth level of the sinful deed, the sinful act? James 1.15, sin that, that conceived lust brings forth sin, and when sin's finished with us, it kills us. Separates us from God, robs us of life's best joys. And I want you to think about this. Repetition causes reprobation. We've talked about one trip through this sin cycle. I want you to think about going through that cycle over and over and over. You think the mental obsession is blinding the first time through. Wait till it's the one millionth time through. Mental obsession. 2 Peter 2 and verse 12 and 14 tells us about it. These as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed speak evil of things they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are in blemishes, sporting themselves with their own uh, deceivings while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, a heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. These people have gone through the sin cycle over and over and over. And so what is their state of mind? They're carnally minded. They cannot cease from sin because the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. They've contemplated it so much, their eyes are full of adultery. Job made a covenant with his eyes. He wasn't even going to look at it or think about it. But these people have filled their minds with it by virtue of the repetition of their sinful habit. And their mind has become corrupted. With their heart they have exercised covetous practices. They've traveled through the sin cycle over and over and over until they're blinded and thoroughly deceived. And that's why sin is addictive. Eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin sounds like an addicted heart to me. It doesn't have to be a physical, chemical substance to make you hooked. All sin works that way. With some, it may seem more obvious than other sins, but all sin works that way. And that's a heart that's utterly perishing in its own corruption. We've got to stop and think soberly about the repeated trips through that sin cycle. 
Proverbs 23 illustrates the notion as it relates to the sin of drunkenness. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contention? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long with the wine? Those who go in search of mixed wine? Do not look on the wine when it is red. Stop it early in its tracks. Don't let yourself become mentally obsessed with this sin. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. It's lying to you. It promises pleasure, but it brings pain. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea or like one who lies on top of the mast saying, They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? That's easy to understand that. You look at that and think alcoholism. That's a picture of all kinds of sin. We read about different sins in 2 Peter chapter 2 that had the same kind of thing. Why? Because somebody's going through that sin cycle time after time after time after time destroying their lives and their minds. And You'll never break through from that until you break the corruption of the heart and accept the truth that God's Word teaches about the destructive power of sin. To beat this, you've got to stop believing the devil's lie and believe God's truth and the warnings of what he says that sin will do to us. What is sin doing to your life tonight? Does Satan have a hold on you? Has he tricked you into turning from God? I hope you're thinking about it with spiritual eyes. You can believe the lie and stay where you're at thinking that it will gain you some good in life, but at the end it will destroy your soul. Why not cast aside sin's lie and believe God's word and come to him? If you're not a Christian, obey the gospel and seek that renewed life wherein his will will show you how to walk away from these things. If you're a fallen child of God, why not return to him now and resume a life of faithful service to him? Do that now while you still have a chance. Don't be deceived any longer. Come, have a seat on the front while we stand and sing.